the Lord's table. We, when we decided that uh, Guga was going to rest this week and and uh, we needed somebody to preach, and um, we talked about it and decided it would be a good idea. Since we're partaking of the Lord's table, we've been having some visitors. We've got a pretty good list of people that are going to be coming members or in the process of becoming members soon here. And and to just reiterate and, and go over again the importance and really what the scriptures say about the Lord's table and the importance of it. And this is actually uh, uh, Gustavo was gracious enough to uh, supply me with his notes and slides and things. So this is a a kind of a redo of a message that he did a little over two years ago. So some of you will remember this message. Remember, they might even like I have in my Bible, some notes that I wrote in my Bible from this sermon. But uh, as we're going to find out uh According to the word of God and according to Jesus, it is good to remember. In fact, this is instituted, this ordinance, so that we will remember, right? So uh, it's good for us to be reminded and reminded. And this was a little over two years ago, and I can't really remember what I even had for breakfast. So this will be good for all of us. It's been very good for me to go over this again, and I believe it will be uh, a blessing for all of us, too. And also, there's a, this one's from 2019. There's one from 2017 uh, when we were in the book of Mark. Uh, it was that long ago, 2017. We we're in chapter 14, so we were toward the end of it there in Mark. But uh, that's where the Lord institutes the supper with his disciples. And I would highly recommend that message to you. Those ones that are uh, becoming members and all. I don't know if those are on the list of all the lots of sermons that you're supposed to be listening to and watching and looking over. But... But um, uh, I would highly recommend that one as well and the institution of the Lord's table. Um, Our text this morning is going to be uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, I'll have you stand in a moment, but as you're turning there, I want to read just a little bit, uh, give a little bit of context so we remember who this book is written to. It's important that we understand Right. The context. We're learning that in Philippians, who it's written to, when it was written. Google actually did two full sermons on just an introduction to the book of Philippians. Right. I just want to read the first three verses of Corinthians so we realize who this is written to. Uh, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our God, our Father, the church. So we know who this is written to, right? Okay, then we go. To chapter 11, and if you'll stand with me for the reading of the word, we'll read our text for this morning. I'm going to start in verse 23. <clears throat> for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this In remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can be seated. God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Guga started out this sermon, you may remember some of these questions, by asking us, should an unbaptized person partake of the Lord's Supper? Should any person, any person who professes to be a Christian come to the table of the Lord? Should the Lord's Supper be ministered in a wedding ceremony? Should the Lord's Supper be ministered during private family devotions? Does Jesus judge churches by how they partake of the Lord's Supper? 
Does Jesus say to a church that practices the Lord's Supper in an unbiblical way, your church gathering is for the worse? Your answers to these questions reveal how much you understand of the gospel and consequently the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Our outline today is going to be very straightforward. The who, what, why, when, where, how often, all those, right? The proper definition of the Lord's Supper, the what, the proper reason for the Lord's Supper, the why, the proper subjects, the who, the proper frequency, the when, the proper location, where, the proper mode, how, and then the proper application. I like that one. The so what? <laughs> so what do we do with all this information, right? <clears throat> so let's jump right in and start with a definition. The proper definition of the Lord's Supper is important to start this study and really any study by defining our terms, right? By defining what we're talking about. The Lord's Supper. What it? What is it? You'll hear different terms used like the Lord's Table, Communion, the Eucharist. And we'll get to some of those as we go through this. But for us this morning and for this church, this is where, how we're going to define the Lord's Supper. is an ordinance given by the Lord Jesus to His church in which the gathered church partakes together of the cup and the bread in order to remember and proclaim Jesus' sacrificial death on behalf of His people until He comes back again. In the Lord's Supper, the church members proclaim their union with one another in Jesus as they remember the glorious death of Jesus and the inauguration of new covenant blessings. That's our definition. The proper reason, the why. Why do we do this? As the definition stated, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance, an order, right? Given by the Lord Jesus to His church. It is a church ordinance because it's an order and command of Jesus to His church. In the Gospel accounts and in 1 Corinthians 11.24, we see Jesus commanded His disciples, Do this in remembrance of Me. So instead of calling the Lord's Supper a church sacrament, we prefer the terminology of ordinance. Because sacrament can carry with it the mystical, possibly unbiblical concept of the Roman Catholic doctrine of ex opere operetto, which means by the virtue of the work done, saving grace is given. So that statement kind of takes away from grace, doesn't it? If you have to do something to get grace, that's not really grace. So Herschel York notes... <clears throat> As far back as the first London Confession in 1644, so like a generation before the 1689, right? Even back then, Baptists rejected the word sacrament because of its implication that the rites are an actual means of grace by which the participant gains something more than he had already through Christ in favor of the more accurate ordinance. Because both baptism and the Lord's Supper are commands of Jesus to those who have already received saving grace. Additionally, Baptists have always named them specifically as church ordinances to be observed in the context and under the authority of a local church. And this may seem unimportant or inconsequential, but a nebulous ecclesiology ultimately clouds soteriology as well. I think that would be a great T-shirt, right? Nebulous ecclesiology ultimately clouds soteriology. You'd probably get a few questions on that one. Like, what in the world? But it's true, right? The way we do church, ecclesiology, our understanding, our knowledge of the church and how the church body and all is supposed to work affects our soteriology. Okay? We're saved by grace alone, Christ alone, through faith alone, right? So to partake of the Lord's Supper is not optional for the disciples of Jesus. The celebration of the Lord's table is not a thing that you choose to do if you feel like it. Instead, it's an act of obedience required by the Lord of the church. How about the proper subjects? That leads us into that, right? When a church celebrates the Lord's Supper, who's invited to the Lord's table? Can anyone and everyone partake? 
Should any person who professes to be a Christian partake of it? Should anyone who shows up at a church meeting and wants to partake be allowed to? The Bible is clear that this is an ordinance given to the church, the disciples of Jesus. When Jesus first instituted this celebration, it was in a strict and private meeting with his disciples. Jesus didn't institute the Lord's Supper when he had all the crowds following him. Isn't that interesting? That's a good point, right? It was just with the twelve in the upper room. And it was during the Passover. If you go to that message in, in Mark, and, and Guga does an excellent job of, of reiterating all the fulfillment of the Passover feast. It's a beautiful, beautiful sermon. I highly recommend that to you. But it was with them, with a, with a specific mission, okay, for his disciples. So it's very clear that the Lord's Supper should be taken in the context of a local church meeting. And the different biblical terms, the different terms that are used in the Bible for the Lord's Supper show us, right, who should partake of it. For instance, the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's banquet or feast. Refers to a special meal. Meals have been extremely significant for people in the Middle East, particularly in Bible times. One of the reasons why this ordinance is also called the breaking of bread is because to break bread is a synonym for having a meal. The early church seemed to have frequent meals during their gatherings in which they would observe this ordinance. And that's part of what he's dealing with in Corinthians with this group, right? Where they're doing it in part in, in, incorrectly because they're taking the meal the way they want to take it and they're having a party and, and Paul's trying to correct them on this, okay? So, but it's obviously in that context of the Lord's Supper. It's His, okay? Not ours to do with whatever we like. It conveys that though <clears throat> that this celebration belongs to Christ, he is the host, and only those who have close fellowship with him can sit at his table. Only those who are blood-bought slaves of Jesus can feast with him. The meal or supper aspect of this ordinance is connected to the fact that meals were deeply connected to covenant in the Old Testament. It was in the context of a feast and establishing the new covenant that Jesus instituted the ordinance, right? He was participating in the Passover and instituting that's the old covenant. I am a fulfillment of all the new covenant and starting the new covenant. Okay. So at meal, the meal was marking the covenant. The supper aspect also reminds us of the new covenant. Only those who part are a part of the new covenant may celebrate the Lord's table. Another word that's used or term that's used is communion. The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means an association involving close mutual relations and involvement or a close association and fellowship. The word koinonia, the strong close fellowship, speaks of a profound involvement with Jesus. To have communion with Jesus is to have communion with his body. A person who does not belong to a local church is not in communion with Christ or his body. Paul is very clear that to partake of the bread and the cup is to have a close and mutual involvement with the body of Christ. Therefore, a person who's not part of a church cannot proclaim his union with the body of Christ. Lack of church membership also leads to a weak view of church discipline, leading to poor view of communion, right? A person who's been excommunicated, right, from a local church shouldn't participate in communion. They've been excommunicated. And if you don't have a serious view of that communion with the body and with Christ, then church discipline is useless, pointless, right? Another term is Eucharist. It's one that a lot of Reformed people like to avoid because of its Catholic implications used in the Catholic Church. But realistically, this is, goes back to a lot, of, a lot of words that we use get taken from us <laughs> that we need to take back, right? And this is one of them, I think, because it's derived from the Greek, Greek word uh, Eucharisto, which just means to be thankful, Okay. So when we say the Eucharist, we're just talking about giving thanks. And it comes from the account of Jesus where he gave thanks, right? Before presenting to his followers the bread and wine, he gave thanks. It reminds us that the fundamental disposition or emotion 
we cultivate at the table is not guilt. It's not obeisance or obligation, but gratitude and wonder. Okay. By this name, we declare our gratitude and thankfulness to belong to the body of Christ. So how can people who don't belong to a local body of believers give thanks for belonging to the body of Christ? Another term similar to the first one, the Lord's table. This name is similar to the Lord's Supper. It emphasizes the authority of the host in inviting his own people to a meal in his presence. So who can sit at the Lord's table? Those whom Jesus has bought with his blood and therefore are part of his body. Another one, the love or agape feast. And we know the Greek word agape is a common one, right? That we know. And it's that special sacrificial love that we're talking about. When Brian read Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? It says to offer yourself a living sacrifice. That's the type of agape love that we're talking about. It's most often used to describe this selfless love. Generally, the agape feast refers to a full meal that Christians had together in the early church, which the Lord's Supper was celebrated. As R.C. Sproul writes, the early church used to come together and celebrate what they called an agape feast or a love feast in which they celebrated the love of God and the love that they enjoyed with one another as Christians at the Holy Supper. So how can one partake of the Lord's Supper at his love feast, if you don't love Jesus' people, the ones for whom he died, if you don't love them enough to be involved in a local church and have true fellowship or communion with them. So that kind of clears up who it's supposed to be for, right? Who it was established for. Another issue is baptism. And we, we, we say here when you're partaking, we want you to be baptized and be a member of a church or be a member of this church or be becoming a member of a church or committed to a local church, covenant relationship with a church. Those are all important things. But baptism is an issue. And it's an issue because uh, many times it says here people feel uncomfortable when we say that the Lord's Supper is for those who have been saved and baptized as if there's no relationship whatsoever between baptism and communion. But it's important to note a logical, rational sequence in relation to water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water baptism is the public inauguration of a person into the body of Christ, the church. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing public declaration of that person's participation and fellowship in the body of Christ. So water baptism is the inauguration ceremony of entrance into the church, while the Lord's Supper is the ongoing ceremony of life in the church. It got me thinking about, I was putting my wedding ring on this morning and uh, reminded me of when you, and when you, I don't wear mine at work because of the type of work I do and different things like that. So it's, I put it on the Lord's day morning and I was putting it on this morning and it made me think of the symbolism of the ring. When you, when you get married and you get into a covenant relationship, you are in front of everyone publicly declaring, right, in front of witnesses, your covenant with this person, right? And then you have a symbol. You celebrate anniversaries every year. You have a symbol that shows that you're in a covenant relationship in this ending, unending love and the circle that's represented anyway. It made me think of that. So the baptism is the same thing. Baptism is like your marriage to the, to the body and then the ongoing uh, means of taking the bread and cup together is a reaffirming and a reshowing of your union, of your joining uh, in communion with the church. So in Matthew 28, Jesus commands his followers to go and make disciples, baptizing them and then commanding them to obey all that he commanded, including the celebration of the Lord's Supper. According to Jesus, one must first be baptized, a baptized disciple, in order to obey the command of partaking of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2, we also see the connection of water baptism leading to membership in the church and breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2 says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. Anyone 
whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, as our koinonia, right? And to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we see the order there. Those who received his word, baptized, added to the church, fellowship, breaking of bread. You see the process, right? Water baptism precedes membership in the church. Once one is part of the church, he can have fellowship with the body of Christ and proclaim his fellowship through the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. Christians living a nomadic lifestyle, church lifestyle, even church shopping, those kind of things, should not partake of the Lord's table. If a person is not committed to a local church, he cannot proclaim his communion with the body through the Lord's Supper. The Bible nowhere envisions Christian coming to the table without being part of a church. Identification with the church, water baptism, precede participation in the privileges of the church. You must identify yourself with the church first through baptism in order to partake in privilege in the privilege of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is about our communion with Jesus and one another. It's about what we have in common. It's about what we share in common with Jesus. Our salvation and life in his body. And this cannot be done with one who is not committed to a local body. If you're not connected to a body, you're not known. This is an example that, that, uh, that Guga gave. We, uh, I use the example of if we had a body that was entirely thumbs or entirely eyes. or you know That would be kind of weird. He used the one here if and this is a good analogy for this, is if there was a thumb or a foot running around by itself, right? <laughs> it was running around, showing up, wanting to be part of the body, right? I, just, I want to be part. No, that's a little, he said it'd be a little creepy. I think that would be a little creepy or scary, right? <clears throat> so same kind of idea when we twist things around a little bit, so... Another who that we need to address is who can minister, administer the Lord's Supper, right? Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It's an activity of the gathered church. Therefore, similar to water baptism, it's important to be administered under the care of those who supervise the local assembly. This does not mean that only pastors can be in charge of the Lord's Supper. And it's not that the elders or teaching pastor have some sort of special blessing or sanctification in order to administer the elements. But due to the significance and profundity of this ordinance, it's important to have a spiritually mature and biblically discerning men to do it. So, and that most frequently happens to be the, the leaders of the church, right? So that's where that is. There's no, it doesn't have to be a special priest. It doesn't have to be a special any of that. Okay. But it should be somebody spiritually mature, sober-minded, those things that we see in Timothy and Titus. All right. The proper frequency, the when, how frequently should the ordinance of the Lord's Supper be held? How often should the local church celebrate the Lord's table? The specific prescription as to the frequency is not clearly mandated anywhere in the Bible. According to Acts 20, verse 7, we know that it was on the first day of the week, Sunday, because that's when the church gathered to worship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When you do, he said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul stated, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The book of Acts does not prescribe the frequency, but it describes the early church having a meal every time they assembled. It was part of their culture and background to have meals together. And it was during those meals that they would partake of the Lord's Supper. So, we believe that we should celebrate it often enough to derive from it its God-given benefit without causing this ordinance to become cheap or common, losing its preciousness on one hand, or superstitious 
on the other hand. So some churches celebrated every Lord's Day and with a tendency that can cause it to lose its preciousness, right? If it becomes a a little too common of a thing, right? Uh, but there are churches that do it. My dad was uh, just has been going to Apologia down there, and they they celebrate Lord's Table every every week. And he was just commenting to me before he even knew I was doing this. He was commenting to me how wonderful it was and what a good job they did with it and those kind of things. So it can be done. But this where we are, we want it to be. There's no actual prescription of day which days when all that, but we want to make it precious and not superstitious, okay? So as the church, as a church with freedom to decide the frequency of celebrating the Lord's Supper, we decided once a month is frequent enough for us to keep it precious without falling into superstitious veneration or letting this glorious ordinance lose its preciousness. Once a month, the whole church gathers together to proclaim the gospel through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And we do that, if you haven't noticed, on the first Lord's Day of the month, is our, just so you can get that in your thinking. Okay. How about the proper location? <clears throat> the where? Jesus gave this ordinance to his church to be celebrated and obeyed by the church. The book of Acts shows that they celebrated the Lord's Supper when the church gathered. Paul clearly states that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is the church's proclamation of its oneness and unity with Jesus in his death. Paul says, when you come together. Speaking of the church gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper outside the context of a local church is to go against Paul's clear instruction about the purpose of this ordinance. There's no such thing as private communion in the Bible. That's, you can't even say those two things together, right? <laughs> private and communion there. <clears throat> Nowadays, we see people taking communion at weddings, in their living rooms, in family worship, different Christian meetings. But this reveals the lack of understanding of this ordinance. Communion outside the coming together of the local church can be dangerous. It's dangerous because it's a perversion of the gospel. It's danger, it dangerously proclaims a, a gospel that you don't need communion with the body of Christ. And it's dangerous because the Lord promises judgment upon those who pervert the Lord's Supper, since it perverts the gospel. So it needs to be done in the church. What about the proper mode? The how? The question of how to obey this ordinance has two aspects. Right? The physical aspect of the elements. How we do which elements to use and how to do that. But it also has a spiritual aspect of one's way of approaching the Lord's table. How do we come before the Lord's table to celebrate it? So the physical elements, in relation to the elements of the Lord's table, the Bible speaks of two, the bread and the cup. And as I said before, the bread and the cup symbolize a whole meal in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. John Beck says it this way, the bread was eaten on a daily basis with virtually every meal because it provided the bulk of carbohydrates and protein people required in order to complete a full day of physical labor or overland travel. And Potsy observes a typical Jewish meal would have included the breaking of bread, the blessing of a cup, words of thanksgiving, and prayer. So for us today, living in prosperous America, the bread and the cup have nothing to do with the meal, right? They're a small part of it. For us, the meal involves an abundance of meat and salad and vegetables and whatever drinks or whatever things we want, right? Anything you want and probably too much of it. <laughs> that wasn't so or it's not so even now for the vast majority of the world. You know, a piece of bread or a cup of rice or something is a whole meal. Did you ever, maybe, maybe this is just me, but have you ever been to a restaurant and you sit down and they bring you your water and they bring you a plate of bread and you eat the bread and you sit and you have a conversation and you're eating the bread and the bread's so good and you're enjoying the fellowship. And then somebody, maybe this only been me, but somebody might say, man, all I needed was the bread. I didn't even have to eat the whole meal, right? Have <laughs> we said that before? <laughs> so that's the idea. Maybe now when you go out to dinner and you'll think of that, maybe. <laughs> all I need is the bread. But that... 
was the idea. It's an entire meal. When we're breaking bread together and having the cup, it's signifying the entire meal. So those are the implements, the elements. And there's some symbolism here too. The bread and the cup have their own specific symbolism. And again, I would refer you to the message on Mark 14 where he's uh, fulfilling, he's telling the disciples how much of a fulfillment of the Passover and the Exodus. And you remember all through Mark, Isaiah, he's bringing up Isaiah and the new Exodus, the new Exodus and the new covenant and just a, just a great message. But there's so much symbolism in the bread and the cup that we can lose if we don't take some time to think about it. The bread and the cup symbolize the meal that we're having with Jesus and with one another. The greatest sign of fellowship in the ancient Near East was sharing a meal together. Eating bread together or giving someone bread was a sign of acceptance. When Jesus restored Peter and the other disciples to service, he gave them bread. Eating together was often a way to celebrate a covenant or agreement. Even today, in many places, wedding ceremonies follow a meal or a meal is followed by the wedding ceremony. The guests and the groom and bride are celebrating the establishment of the covenant. And I talked about that earlier when I was talking about my wedding ring. That also gives you something to remember, right? When you have that meal, it marks a moment that you can remember. Okay? We had a very special ceremony where we actually had the, the, um, the meal first and time of fellowship first. And then while people were eating, we stood up and and at our ceremony. And that's something we can remember and cherish and look back on and mark the beginning of the covenant. And there was no greater honor than to sit at the king's table and have a meal with the king. And lack of bread was a sign of God's judgment. And actually, I'll let you look these scriptures up, but eating human excrement and cannibalism are signs of God's judgment because there was no bread. Okay? No vine. So every time we break bread and eat bread, there's a profound theology behind it, proclaiming that we are no longer under the curse of sin. Jesus has brought all the blessings of the covenant. We share the blessings of God together. We have the greatest privilege of all sharing a meal with the King of Kings. And the cup, symbolism of the cup, the cup throughout scriptures is either a symbol of blessing or curse or wrath. Because Jesus, listen to this statement here, because Jesus drank the cup of wrath and cursing on our behalf, he offers us the cup of blessing. I'm going to read that one one more time. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath and cursing on our behalf, he offers us the cup of blessing. It is important to remember that in the ancient Near East, with its scarcity of water, wine was a necessity rather than a luxury. And it's therefore easily, uh, it therefore easily became the image of substance and life. And it's interesting here, isn't it interesting, that in all the synoptic accounts, Jesus does not say wine. He always says the fruit of the vine. And the main purpose is not the literal drink inside the cup, but the whole symbolism behind the terminology of vines and vineyards in the Old Testament. Again, I refer you back to Mark chapter 14. One of the signs of God's curse was the lack of vineyards, therefore a lack of wine. Israel was pictured as a vineyard, the Lord's vineyard. Jesus declared himself to be the true vine, the true Israel, and he commands his people to remain in him. So by drinking from the fruit of the vine... We proclaim our union with Jesus. The cup symbolizes our union with Jesus through his death and the establishment of the new covenant. And we need to be careful with legalistic approaches to the Lord's Supper that divide the body of Christ over circumstantial details pertaining to the elements of the Supper. We need to be careful with overzealous approaches to the elements of the Lord's Supper that empty the elements of their true biblical meaning. In other words, we need to go back and look at these symbolism and really understand what the symbolism is of these things rather than getting caught up in the things of what type of bread, unleavened, leaven, you know, what type, real wine, no wine, 
juice, what type of wine, you know, you can get wound up in a whole bunch of different unnecessary decisions there, right? <clears throat> and, you know, if we should share one cup, I think that one may go the wayside for a while. We'll see. <laughs> but sharing one cup with all the church, you know, those, there's all kinds of little things you can get caught up in. But all the Bible says is bread and the cup, because that's the perfect imagery of an ancient meal, a feast with the King of Kings. The bread and the cup speak to our acceptance, covenant, union with Christ, and protection from God's curses. It celebrates that. How about the how? <clears throat> the how is to the manner of approaching. So we talked about what we're supposed to do, the cup and the bread. Now let's talk about what's going on in my heart. How are we to approach the Lord's table? How are Christians commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper? Does Jesus care about how one approaches his table? We already saw, yeah, that only Christians who were baptized and in connection with a local church should partake of the Lord's Supper. But Paul also speaks of how these Christians are to approach the table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Some strong words. Christians are commanded by Jesus to examine themselves before coming to his table. <clears throat> Marion Sword says, the word translated to examine is related to the word translated approval in verse 19. Thus, Paul's language makes a connection that shows that the examination to which one is to submit oneself is to be done in terms of the standards of approval that God sets for life. God's will, not human opinion, is to be the measure of one's attitude and behavior. Yes, the Lord's Supper is a time of great joy when we remember and proclaim all the benefits of Jesus' death on our behalf. But it is also very sobering and solemn time for self-examination. We must test our hearts, attitudes, and action in the light of truth of the gospel. If the Lord's Supper is a time to remember all the benefits of Jesus' death and proclaim your union with Him in His body, you must make sure that your life is aligning with what you are proclaiming, right? Your words and your actions. You're proclaiming that I am in union with Christ. How does everyone else see what that looks like? How about what Paul says? <clears throat> Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul is not talking about unworthy people since nobody is worthy apart from God's saving grace and mercy, but he's talking about an unworthy manner, a displeasing and inappropriate manner, a mode of celebrating the Lord's table. The manner and practice of the Lord's Supper can be so displeasing and inappropriate before Jesus that he brings judgment on a church. It's in verse 11 or chapter 11 and says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And I will not commend you. I'm not going to praise you, it says in the NAS. The manner of your approach must be marked by self-examination, a time to think about your Christian life and repent and turn away from your sins. You cannot come to proclaim your union with Jesus when you're cultivating anger, bitterness, sinful addictions, pornography, sexual immorality, if you're abusive at home, if you're angry, lying, cheating. We learned a couple weeks ago being anxious. <laughs> How can you proclaim the selfless love of Jesus when you are selfish and prideful? The church members of Corinth were despising one another, lacking love towards one another, not caring for each other, not serving each other, and then coming to celebrate communion. Paul says, stop it. You either repent of your sins or stop coming together. How have you been 
preparing yourself for the Lord's Supper. Have you been preparing yourself to obey the Lord in the celebration of His table? Do you think about it during the week? Do you spend time in prayer Saturday night asking the Lord to show in which areas you need to repent? Do you prioritize the first Sunday of the month when we partake of the elements in this church? Do you make sure that the Lord's table is a priority over secondary conflicting activities? Do your children see in you what the ordinance truly means? That is why we always announce from the pulpit the Sunday before, Dear congregation, next Lord's Day, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Make sure you prepare yourselves. Prepare your hearts to come to this table. Because the celebration of the Lord's Supper is the proclamation of the gospel, you must prepare yourself. No one here, right, wants our teachers to come to church unprepared, not ready, thrown off guard in relation to proclaiming the gospel, right? So why would we come unprepared to proclaim the gospel through the Lord's Supper? Improper manner equals judgment. If the manner is wrong, if Jesus is displeased with how a church obeys his ordinances of the Lord's Supper, he will judge her. The Lord brings spiritual and physical harm to a church that does not practice the Lord's Supper properly because that church is perverting the gospel of Jesus. 29 through 32 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Jesus brings judgment to churches and church members who partake of his glorious ordinances in an unworthy manner because it perverts the proclamation of the gospel. That is why we strive to be so careful with whom and how we partake of the Lord's Supper. We do not want poor, bad, or perverted preaching of the gospel in this church. Therefore, we must make sure that our proclamation of the gospel through the Lord's Supper is not poor and perverted. So what's the solution? Paul states it. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Examination, repentance, and celebration. What about the proper application? The so what? What do we do with all this information? The importance of this ordinance, or what makes this ordinance important to the life of the church, right? At the Lord's Supper, the church remembers the benefits of the new covenant. And we're about to partake. So, and we just talked about examination. So when I'm going through these the application points, I want you to think, be thinking about what we're about to do. Okay? So at the Lord's Supper, the church remembers the benefits of the new covenant in Jesus' death. The most fundamental and important aspect of this ordinance is the fact that we all remember together what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Behold Jesus' words. Do this in remembrance of me. The word anamnesis simply means to recollect or to remember. There's nothing mystical or magical about it. If you notice, that word is amnesis, amnesia. Ana means no amnesia. (laughs) Remember, okay? Many Christians, particularly in the Reformed camp, reject this by saying that this is minimalistic. Or it's a minimalist view of the Lord's Supper, arguing that there must be something more profound and mysterious or mystical than just remembering. They argue that Jesus meant something more profound than just remembering, but they miss the point. Jesus knew how crucial and vital it is for his people to stop and remember the elementary teaching of the gospel. The church gets so busy and occupied with so many good things that it forgets the cross of Jesus. Busy with church events, with church policies, with church finances, families, growing, babies, right? Buildings, programs, different topics of preaching, deaths of members. You know, there's so many things that we can get wound up in. But we have to remember why and how he died. 
There's so much to remember about Jesus' death. His agony, His pain, betrayals, suffering, crucifixion, the glory that He left behind. We talked about that just in chapter 2 of Philippians, right? The wrath of God. And there's so much to remember about the benefits of His death on our behalf. All the glories of the new covenant, a new heart, adoption into God's family, forgiveness of sin, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew how prone we are to forget the most important things. So in the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of what is truly important in this life and in the life to come. And I could add there that he providentially wanted us to remember this sermon from a couple years ago too, right? As we hold the bread and cup, we're reminding ourselves of what Jesus accomplished. He died to make us one. The loaf of bread was broken in order to make the many of us one body. He died to redeem us, to buy us for himself with his blood. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to one another. You cannot be living in sin because you are Christ's and you are mine. There's no need for superstition or mystical union and communion with Jesus. The words of Jesus are abundantly clear. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as a glorious memorial of the benefits of the new covenant acquired for us in Jesus' death. Memories are powerful. Memories bring strong emotions. Memories move us. Patsia notes on the concept of remembrance that it conveys not merely the idea of looking back, but remembering with the idea of making it present. Muncie's Dictionary says it this way. Muncie's Dictionary says this, Remembering should affect one's, one li- one's life significantly in terms of changing attitudes or taking some action. In other words, we don't just remember to remember. We remember so that it changes the way we treat things. New Testament authors frequently exhort believers to remember with prayer and with action. So remember our union with Him. We cannot live in sin. That's Paul's argument against adultery in the whole book of of idolatry and immorality in First in Corinthians, right? And Second Corinthians. Remember our union with one another, leading to action, caring for one another, and showing our communion with one another. Okay. The Lord's Supper. The church proclaims the benefits of the new covenant in Jesus' death. One of the most precious aspects of the Lord's Supper is that in this ordinance, the whole church, all the members are preachers preaching the same message. Our actions and gestures proclaim in a unique way the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper, like water baptism, proclaims the gospel of Jesus. It is a church's proclamation of the gospel as a unified body. That's why we don't have a special, secret, separate service We want everyone to see. We want everyone to come and see you all preach the gospel through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. It makes it visible. And the Lord's Supper proclaims our unity in Jesus. We are proclaiming the gospel and our union with one another. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. 
That is why Paul rebukes the Corinthians and shows no mercy toward their behavior because their celebration of communion was a contradiction of the message of communion among the members of the body. Paul's central claim in 1 Corinthians is that we who are many are one body. And he twice grounds our support or supports this assertion by referring to our joint participation in the Lord's Supper. Celebrating the Lord's Supper together is an essential step in making a church a church. The Lord's Supper makes many one. In water baptism, the one becomes many. The one baptized becomes part of the many members. He is no longer one. In the Lord's Supper, the many become one. All the members show their unity in Christ. So, dear congregation, that is why the Lord's Supper must be taken very seriously by all Christians, but particularly you who are members of this church. We want to glorify Jesus in our communion. We want the gospel of Jesus to be proclaimed without hypocrisy in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we want sinners and Christians lacking commitment to feel uncomfortable, to repent. And we don't want God's judgment on us. So then, my brothers and sisters, may our celebration, our eating and drinking be to the glory of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this body that you have brought together. And Lord, we know that from the institution of the new covenant, Lord, when you, when you brought us into your family, when you died and paid for our sins, when you shed your blood and when your body was broken so that we can one, be one body, we, we are so grateful for the memory that you've given us, for the ability to come together and be reminded again and again, Lord. We pray that it would constantly be in our minds and that we take this time seriously and that we would remember what we are proclaiming with our action, that we are yours, that we are one another, and that we love you and because you first loved us and gave yourself for us. So, Lord, we ask that you would be with us during this time of remembrance. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.